I brought a visual aid this morning, River West. Recognize this. This is your reminder that Christmas Eve is right around the corner, all right? And here's what I want you to know. I have 1,000 of these candles, and we're going to make them available for you. Because here's the thing. This year, as we prayed about Christmas Eve, we felt like in order to reach as many people as we can with the gospel, we're, we're putting together a very special Christmas Eve worship experience that will be on YouTube. It will premiere at 2 p.m. on Christmas Eve. And we want as many friends, neighbors, family to tune in to that as possible. But we want you to have your own Christmas Eve candles. So we're going to make these available to you so that rather than spilling wax in our sanctuary, you can spill wax on your own furniture. Amen? How's that sound? So here's how that'll work. It Come back next Sunday. These will be here, but we'll also be, we'll have a drive up out here in our parking lot on Christmas Eve morning, 9 to 11, and you can drive through and get candles. We'll give you as many candles as you want, plus we've got a gift for you. That should be wonderful. Uh, In lieu of a postcard invite, this year we made a digital invite. And you can find that on the webpage. Just go to the webpage and go to Christmas Eve service. You download that invite and you can send it to anyone around the globe. A friend somewhere who might need to be encouraged on Christmas Eve. But most importantly, pull your family together sometime on Christmas Eve and worship. There will be a candle lighting moment. It's going to be amazing. Amen? Sound good? We do this. We pull out your Bible now and we're going to God's word this morning. Luke 18 is where we go. Luke 18, in verse 9. In the mid-1800s, the Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard wrote a parable about two men who, in the middle of the night, broke into a jewelry store, and they did something strange. They switched all the price tags. So they didn't steal anything. This is what was odd. They didn't steal anything. They moved to the grocery store and they took the high-priced tags off the expensive jewelry and they put them on the costume jewelry. And then they took the bargain price tags off the costume jewelry and they put them on the really expensive stuff. So that the following morning when the jewelry store opened and people came in unawares to what had happened. Some people walked out having spent thousands of dollars on a piece of costume jewelry. (laughs) And other people walked out spending pennies on something priceless. It'd be like walking into Best Buy tomorrow and the iPhone 12 is $25, okay? And the prepaid Vodafone is $1,000, all right? Except that in this situation, people had no idea that the price tags had been switched. And of course, Kierkegaard used this parable as a critique of his culture. He said, my point is obvious, isn't it? The people of my day have no ability to tell the truly valuable from the truly worthless. So glad that doesn't apply to our culture. <laughs> All right. And my point of this parable is to say that actually, in many ways, that's exactly the way that Jesus used his teaching, even his parables. Jesus would often use his parables, in a sense, to flip things on their head, to switch the price tags, if you will. 
He would, he would challenge the common sense religious thinking of his day with the counterintuitive logic of the gospel and flip things upside down as if to say, your values are so messed up. You, even, even, even in your practice of religion, so often your ways are not God's ways at all. And the greatest example of that is Luke 18, starting in verse 9. Will you look at it now with me? Here's what Jesus said. He also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Now, you remember last week I told you there's only two places in the Gospel of Luke where Luke tells us the purpose of the parable before actually relaying the parable? This is the second Example. Now he's telling a parable to some who trust in themselves for righteousness, where we get the word self-righteous, and look down on others with contempt. And here's the parable. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The word of the Lord. This parable is unique to Luke. He's the only gospel writer who records Jesus telling this parable. And when you study it, one of the things you discover is that most scholars view this parable to basically capture the entire teaching of, gospel, of Luke's gospel. It is, like, it is like the theological center of his gospel. It's so profound. At one level, it's so simple. Anyone can read it and sort of get the meaning, right? And yet the implications of this parable are absolutely sweeping. I have waited my entire life as a preacher to preach this passage, okay? I'll be honest with you, I intentionally scheduled myself to preach on this Sunday because I don't know when next time we'll be back to the Gospel of Luke, and I wanted to preach it so much. So here I am preaching this parable. And let me tell you a couple things now about the parable that will help you sort of get the meaning. There's some interesting details here. The first thing you got to understand is that this parable is specifically designed to shock the audience. And shock them, it did they would have been flabbergasted. This is the gas moment. <gasps> what are you talking about? To say that a self-confessed wretch leaves the temple in a right relationship with God rather than the self-confessed righteous man is to completely overturn common sense religious thinking. Jesus just switched the price tags. It would have stunned the religious sensibilities 
of everyone who heard it. Because think about this. He did not just say the Pharisee is brought down to the same level as the tax collector. That's not where he stops. He actually says the tax collector left that day in a right relationship with God. And the Pharisee left that day not in a relationship with God. That's shocking. Here's the second thing to know. The parable is built, completely built on a contrast. We have two men who could not be more different, a Pharisee, ultimate example of religiosity, religious practice, righteousness. And we have a tax collector who was the wretch of his society. He had betrayed his people. He was a cheat. He was an extortioner. He was in cahoots with the Romans, the ultimate example of sin. So we got two characters. We have two postures. We have two prayers and we have two outcomes, radically different outcomes. It's really interesting. You don't necessarily hear this in English, but in the Greek, if you look at your Bible in verses 11 and 12, when Jesus describes their posture and their prayer, this is so, in the Greek, Jesus uses five words to describe the posture of the Pharisee, but it takes him 25 words words to recount his prayer. It's very verbose. It's very long-winded. It's very (laughs) self-referential. Okay. But then when he talks about the tax collector, he uses 29 words to describe his posture and only five words to describe a very simple, very honest prayer. It reminds me of that place in Ecclesiastes where the writer says, you are God in heaven, so I'll let my words be few, (laughs) right? The last thing to know is that prayer in the temple was a public event. So don't think private devotion here. They weren't alone. When they went up, they went up with a bunch of other worshipers. There were two times of prayer, 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. And many devout people would come to worship and pray. A priest would have been there. A priest would have made a sacrifice of atonement. You need to just think about that. That's going to come back in a few moments. So there would have been a sacrifice made, a priest mediating that, and there would have been praying, all right? So we have two characters. We have two postures, very different postures. We have two very different prayers, and we have two very different outcomes. And so this morning, I have got two points. Hallelujah, right? Hallelujah. In fact, they're not just points. They're more like observations. One observation for each character. Write this down. Think about it. Observation number one goes like this. You don't actually need God to be religious. In fact, much of the time, religiosity has very little, if anything, to do with God or a desire for God. The Pharisee went to the temple not to invest in his relationship with God. He went to the temple to invest in his relationship with himself. And religion simply provided him the means. Now, he starts off pretty good. Look at his prayer. He starts off and he says, I thank you, God. And the reader's thinking, okay, we're we're off to a good start. This is a prayer of thanksgiving. But what you quickly realize is that he never mentions God again. In fact, God goes out of the picture, but he stays very much in the spotlight, right? And he repeats, I, 
I do this. I'm not like those people. I tithe. I give. It's I, I, I. That's you almost get this. It's so sacrilegious. You want to step back. He's almost saying, God, you have no idea how lucky you are that I'm on your team. Team Jesus. Amen. Right. And here's the thing. Before we throw stones at this kind of a prayer, can we be honest about the fact that sometimes in our own prayer life, we can sort of gravitate into that a little bit. You start out good. You start out praying to God and then your mind starts to wander and pretty soon you're sort of talking to yourself or you're working through your your schedule or your agenda or you're giving yourself a pep talk or you're having a pity party and we some, sometimes we even take the phrase thy will be done and we replace it with my will be done and all of it wrapped in prayer it's entirely possible to address God in our prayers but actually be praying to ourselves and that right Interesting. You don't actually need God to be religious. In fact, the point is that the Pharisee was using religion to trust in himself that he was righteous. That's where we get this phrase, self-righteousness. Now, wait a minute, River West, think about this. That is not to say that only religious people are self-righteous. See, sometimes we hear the word self-righteous and we immediately think, oh yeah, really devout Christians are the ones who are self-righteous. But self-righteousness is a human nature thing. In fact, some of the most stark examples of self-righteousness happen outside of the church in the secular world, not inside the church. And that's not my argument. That's the argument of one of the the great books I read in the last few years is a book by um, a secular... Jew. He probably would even call himself an agnostic. His name is Jonathan Haidt. He wrote a book called The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And here's what he argues. He argues that righteousness, self-righteousness, is just a human nature thing. We're all moralistic in a sense. We all want to feel like we're a part of the group that's on the right side of things. And it feels really good from there to, to, uh, to feel outraged about things that are happening and look down on other people and, and, and experience that self-righteousness. Jonathan says, That's, don't, don't only think Christianity. This is, this is just a human problem. He says, that's why politicians and social media will always present you with things to be outraged by because they know how good it feels. Okay. To feel out, oh, I cannot believe, and I'm so glad I'm over here with the right people. And by the way, your, your, your Facebook algorithm knows that about you, okay? It's always presenting you with something to be outraged by, right? Amen? Because it feels good to feel outraged. It feels good to be self-righteous. It feels good to look down on others with contempt. Can we talk about the word contempt really briefly? Will you look at it there in your Bible? It shows up twice. It shows up in the prayer when he, when he says, I'm so glad I'm not like that tax collector over there. But look at verse 9, where, where Luke tells us why this parable is being told. He says, he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Treated us with contempt. And what Luke is saying is that self-righteousness and contempt, 
they go together, okay? Think about this. Self-righteousness and contempt, they're not accidental friends. They're more like codependent lovers, all right? I wrote that phrase this week after two shots of espresso, which is either the worst or the best time to write a sermon, all right? And here's the point. Self, think of it. Self-righteousness and contempt go together. In fact, they, they cannot exist without each other. Because here's the thing. In order to establish righteousness without God, what you have to do is create a standard by which you look down on other people who are not as good as you are. We need someone who's less moral than me, less educated than me, less enlightened than me, less liberal than me, less conservative than me, less woke than me, less beautiful than me. And then I take that place of self-righteousness and I look down on another with contempt. And Jesus says, the problem is that that guy walked out of the temple that day and he was not in a relationship with God. And so Jesus says, it's not the way. It's not the way. It's not the way of the gospel. And then Jesus switches the price tags. Okay, so here's my second observation. And now I'm going to make an observation about the tax collector. Please write this down. Think about it. Somehow, the tax collector figured out God's standard for righteousness. And it brought him to the end of himself. It split him open. Somehow he came to terms. There he is. He's standing in the temple. He's praying. And he's not just focused on his own sin. Somehow in that moment, he came to terms with God's perfect standard for righteousness. And that is the thing that split him to his core, which, by the way, River West, that is the very heart of the gospel. That is the biblical way of describing salvation, to come to terms with God's standard so that you become aware of your own desperate need. Think of Isaiah in the temple in Isaiah chapter 6. Do you know the passage? There's Isaiah. He has a vision where he sees the Lord seated on a throne. There are angels who have covered their eyes and they're worshiping. They're singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what happens to Isaiah as he comes to the recognition of God's standard of righteousness? It splits him to his core and he cries out, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Or David, in Psalm 51, as he came to an understanding of God's righteousness. And he wrote things like, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Again and again and again. And this is what happened to the tax collector. Now you say, Pastor, how are you getting that from this parable, though? Well, three clues. And actually, they're not just clues. They're evidences. The first thing you need to realize is Jesus himself tells us that's what this parable means. Look at verse 14. Jesus gives the punchline to the whole parable. 
when he says, I tell you, do you see that? This is now the authoritative son of the living God telling us the meaning of the parable. And what is the meaning of the parable? I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. And the other was extremely righteous. But the one who went down in a right relation, that's what the word justified means, by the way. Do you know? It means to be declared right. It's the moment in the courtroom when the judge pounds the gavel and says, not guilty. I declare you righteous. And Jesus switches the price tags, flips the whole system upside down. This is the moment when everyone gasps. This is the moment when everyone says, I think Jesus just misspoke. He's about to correct himself. He's going to turn that back around. And Jesus says, no, I'm not. This is the moment when the wretch walks out of the temple and God says, I declare you right and we're in a relationship. And the devout religious practicing one leaves in no relationship. In one moment, like this, River West, please hear me. This is pure gospel. In a moment, an extreme sinner can be pronounced instantly righteous without any works, any merit, any worthiness, any law-keeping, without achieving anything morally, no religious achievement, no spiritual accomplishments, no time lapse, no penance, no works, no ceremony, whatever, nothing to do, instant declaration of righteousness. And how? How can this be? Because the only righteousness that God will accept is perfect righteousness. And since he knew he could never accomplish that, he came to the end of himself and he begged God to accomplish it on his behalf. And that's biblical Christianity. And you know what's amazing about it? The Pharisee, did you know that every single thing that the Pharisee said about himself was true? He was religious. He, he, he did practice. He worked himself to the bone being religious. And he walked out of the temple outside of a relationship with God. The opposite of self-righteousness is savior righteousness. You give up on yourself and you flee to the savior, which is precisely what the tax collector did. Did you know this is how Martin Luther got saved? Martin Luther, the great reformer. He came to this realization, God's standard of righteousness. Martin Luther, he he wrote many profound things, but he talked about how the righteousness of God haunted him. He was a devout monk. He tells a story once about one morning, he went down into the kitchen before any of the other monks were awake, and there was only a tiny little bit of coffee left. And he, he looked around, and he and he used up all the rest of the coffee. And he, he was so sensitive to the righteousness of God that haunted him all day long. And when I read that, I thought, I have got some serious praying to do, people, because I am, man, I am a sloth compared to this guy. But that haunted him. And he, he actually wrote one day, I hate the righteousness of God because it haunted him. 
And he knew, I've worked myself to the bone and that will never even get me close to God's standard. And then one morning in a born again experience, reading reading the book of Romans, he realized God has provided righteousness as a gift through Jesus Christ, my savior. Amazing. So let's see how the tax collector experiences that. Look now really just for just a few moments at his posture and his prayer. It's really interesting the way Jesus describes him, okay? 29 words to describe his posture, but only five need to describe the prayer because it's the posture that tells us so much. Think about this. Look at verse 13. Number one, he was standing far off. He was standing far off. Why? Because he considers himself to be unworthy to stand with God's people before the altar. Oh, he, he came to the temple longing for a relationship with God, but once he got there, he realized, I do not deserve to be in the presence of the people of God. And sisters and brothers, can I tell you something? If you feel like you don't deserve to be here with us, that's probably evidence number one that you're right where you belong. He would not even lift up his eyes. See that? He stood far off. He couldn't even lift up his eyes. By the way, that's the way the people of God have traditionally prayed. The, the Jews always prayed. So we, we bow our heads, you know? But that's not, that's, that's not the Jewish way. The Jewish way is to look up, right? My youth pastor one time, we were in the car, and he, and he said, let's pray. And I said, no. I will. And he prayed with his eyes open, right, as he drove. That's the biblical way. But this tax collector cannot look up because of the shame. And he beat his breast. He beat his breast, which was a gesture of despair. That was a sign of extreme sorrow. It was usually an activity only reserved for funerals. And you never did something like that to pound on yourself in, in a public prayer meeting. This would have drawn a lot of attention to him, but he was under genuine conviction of sin. And he knew it. He wasn't paying attention to anyone else. He was only focused on his own condition. He didn't offer a defense he wasn't trying to justify his sin. He didn't compare himself to other ta- He could have said, I'm so glad I'm not like that other tax collector who's even worse than me. No, he doesn't explain it or justify it or compare himself. He just stands far off with his head down and he says, God, there's no way that I can meet your standards. No way. And now we're ready to understand the prayer. Now, if I had another sermon to preach, I might preach a whole sermon on this next phrase. We look at your Bible and that little humble God be merciful to me. Here's the thing that we don't see. There's two Greek words for mercy. One of them is just the standard to have pity on someone. Just I feel sorry for you, so I'm going to have pity on you. It's a very generic term. And Luke uses it a lot, but not here, which tells us he knows what he's doing. He's using a different word. 
And the word that Luke uses here comes from the biblical Old Testament concept to cover over something or to use a theological word to make atonement. To cover over, to atone for, to propitiate through a sacrifice. And what that means is the tax collector is not in that moment simply saying, God, have pity on me. What he's saying is he's saying, God, my sin is so horrible and your righteousness is so pure that the only way I can have a relationship with you is if you cover over my sin and if you apply the atonement to me. Think about it. He was standing next to a Pharisee, a religious guy. They both saw a sacrifice made, an atoning sacrifice, but only one of them thought that he needed it. And it was not the Pharisee. This is the heart of the gospel. People who are self-righteous have no interest in atonement because they don't think they need it. But the Christian knows. The Christian comes to the moment of communion. Will you pull out your communion packet with me this morning? Pull out that communion packet. Now think about this, sisters and brothers. The Christians who heard this parable being told, they heard a tax collector crying out, God, have mercy on me. God, apply the atonement to me. The Christian knows that God answered that prayer through the sacrificial death of the Savior. Because those animal sacrifices never fully covered sin. And the Christian knows that's why Jesus finally said, I will send the one perfect final sacrifice for sin, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Christian knows that. The self-righteous person comes to a moment like communion and it's lost on them because they don't think they need it. But the believer who has come to terms with the holiness of God, the righteous standard of God, see, we come to this moment and our hearts are flooded with gratitude. And we reject self-righteousness and we flee to save your righteousness. Oh God, would you take the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and will you transfer it, cover over my sin? And oh God, would you take my sin and would you transfer it to Jesus, my savior? And that's why this moment is a moment of gratitude and grace. Amen? Amen.